Welcome to Nutritank's podcast. When you tune in, you're going to listen to a fantastic array of speakers speaking about things in the following fields such as food, farming, nutrition, lifestyle medicine and other areas of health. We can't wait to have you with us on this journey. Millennials, coddled entitled, narcissistic, work shy and bloody lazy. We want to redeem millennials and give ourselves a good reputation. We have poured endless passions and hard work into Nutritank and this podcast. We hope you learn and enjoy. If you enjoyed today's episode on the podcast, then please subscribe to the rest of the podcast. Share it with your friends, family and colleagues. Give the podcast a five-star rating and leave a kind review. It will really help with Nutritank's mission to be the leading hub for food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine. I'm your host, Ali Jaffe, and welcome to today's episode on Nutritank's Nourish Your Mind podcast. This episode is part of our food and mood sequence, and today's will be part one, looking at the international perspectives from research to clinical practice. This sequence is probably the sequence most close to my heart, as I want to pursue a career as a psychiatrist, and I really hope to bring to practice nutrition and lifestyle medicine. So let's introduce our wonderful guests. First up, we've got Megan Lee, all the way from Australia. She's a PhD candidate and academic tutor at Southern Cross University in Australia. Megan has a Bachelor of Psychological Science and is passionate about research in how food affects mood. Her PhD topic is whole diet approaches to mental health, focusing on dietary patterns and depression. Megan also conducts voluntary cooking workshops in her local community, helping low-income families make healthier swaps into foods they love within a restricted budget. She has published many articles and peer-reviewed papers focusing on the link between food and psychological well-being, intuitive eating in postpartum women, and dietary patterns to mention a few. She also has a wide-ranging portfolio of media appearances on Australian TV and has spoken at a multitude of conferences. Next up, we've got Dr. Sabrina Morkel, all the way from Austria, not as far as Australia, I promise, I didn't do that name thing on purpose. Anyhow, Dr. Sabrina Morkel is a medical doctor, trained psychotherapist, acupuncturist and deputy student training coordinator for psychiatry and psychotherapeutic medicine at the Medical University of Graz in Austria. As well as this, she's a visiting lecturer internationally. In her doctoral thesis, she explored the gut microbiome of anorexia nervosa patients in comparison to other BMI groups and athletes. Learning more about the critical role of nutrition for gut and brain health, she began to focus on the role of nutrition in psychiatric healthcare. And in 2018, she co-founded the first elective university course in Europe on nutrition-based prevention and treatment approaches in psychiatric care. Alongside her unbelievably impressive and wide-ranging career, Sabrina has won many prizes in the field of clinical psychiatry and has published countless peer-reviewed papers on topics such as the role of the gut-brain axis in psychiatry, the impact of bacterial diversity in bipolar disorder and anorexia nervosa, to name but a few. 
So let's welcome them both. Welcome, welcome. Today is such an exciting podcast, a very international one. Hello to Megan and Sabrina. It's such a pleasure to have you both on to talk about this fantastic field of nutritional psychiatry that's only just emerging now. So could you just start off by briefly introducing yourselves to our listeners? Sabrina, you go first. Ellie, hi Megan. And uh, thanks again for your kind invitation to join this podcast. My name is Sabrina. I'm a consultant psychiatrist and psychotherapist for behavioral therapy at the Medical University of Graz in southern Austria. And yes, I became fascinated about the impact of food and nutrition on mental disorders a few years ago when I started my PhD on uh, the gut microbiome in anorexia nervosa and other BMI groups. And I really noticed that nutrition is such a huge impact factor that can change not only the gut microbiome system, but also the way we think, feel, and act for the gut brain axis. I also hold a diploma for nutrition, and now I work on a ward specialized in eating disorders and nutritional approaches and nutritional psychiatry at my medical university. Wow, what a skill set. <laughs> Amazing. And Megan? Hi, I'm Megan Lee. I'm in Australia, not in Austria, in Australia. <laughs> um, I am a current PhD student at Southern Cross University, um, and I am interested in whole of dietary patterns and their influence on mental health illness, um, in particular dietary patterns and depression. So um, I have a bachelor in psychological science, so my background is um, in psychology, but I'm, I've always been really, really passionate about how the how what we eat affects how we think, feel, act and behave. And so starting off with you, Megan, what actually brought you to the field of food and mood, uh, nutritional psychiatry from your psychology background? Was it something you'd noticed um, that was missing in the field of research itself? Or did you have any personal experiences where you saw the light with this important intervention of nutrition for mood? story is that I have had a a few people in my personal life who have gone to uh, GPs when they were having a bad time in their life or a breakup or having financial troubles and the GP has instantly um, prescribed them with antidepressant medications or other medications for other mental health issues that they thought that they had and sent them off to a psychologist but without asking them anything about their background what was happening in their lives how they were eating how they were resting what their physical activities levels were and a lot of uh, my friends and family that had gone to and been prescribed these medications had really bad adverse reactions to them Um, and I just started to think there's got to be a better way than just going, feeling sad, going to a GP, getting prescribed with these medications and then um, potentially them not being the greatest thing for them. So Mm. I thought there's got to be other treatments out there that could be used alongside or as a complementary treatment with these um, other classical treatment options that we're given. Absolutely. 
And as you say, you want to kind of be in a position, I think, where you feel empowered by the treatment rather than just kind of being handed a medication. You want to feel like you can do something in your own personal life to be able to maintain your mental health. So yeah, I completely, um, yeah, I completely align with your story. And what about you, Sabrina? Was there a specific clinical case um, as a psychiatrist that you saw or what kind of drew you to the field of nutritional psychiatry? Actually, there were two stories. Uh, as I said, I started my PhD in 2017. And at that time, there was barely any research on gut microbiome, gut brain axis and mental disorders. And at my ward, we are treating many patients with severe anorexia nervosa. So no psychopharmacological treatment seems to help there, and psychotherapy sometimes does not work as well because their weight is just too low. And I became fascinated by the idea that maybe a change in the internal environment in the gut microbiome could change the way the patients respond to therapies and then decided to investigate that further. And at that time, I also treated a patient with a, a very therapy-resistant depression. Mm -hmm. So she had every kind of, uh, of psychotherapy already and every kind of uh, medication worked. And uh, then I decided to ask her a question that no psychotherapist asked her before. And this question simply was, yeah, what, what do you eat? What do you have for lunch? What do you have for dinner? And uh, we did a food protocol together and noticed that she was really consuming, you know, loads of junk food, sweets and stuff. And step by step, we managed to change her diet. She felt, as you said, really empowered by that. And um, I was fascinated when she finally got better and the antidepressants started to work. So she she tried like uh, 10 antidepressants before and nothing worked. And then together with the diet, there was finally some improvement. And this was really impressive to see for me as a psychiatrist. Wow. And this is what I find so fascinating is that I think in society we have a kind of... Um, we, we have a thing where we put things into boxes and we silo things off. So you're either a conventional psychiatrist or doctor or you're one that's into alternative treatments. And likewise, how the patient views it, you're either a naturopath or, you know, you would rather uh, pharmaceuticals. We very much live in these kind of extremes. But what you're describing is actually how these work in synergy together with the antidepressants actually becoming more effective by changing someone's diet and I think that's what's so remarkable is that how conventional medicine and lifestyle medicine can really go hand in hand together to better the patient's outcomes that's true I definitely agree with that <laughs> absolutely so finding out a little bit more about where you guys are from um Sabrina could you just tell us a little bit about the Austrian healthcare system and um, how things run there so our listeners can just understand a bit more um, the kind of context from where you're coming from and whether it's similar or differs to the UK so tell us a bit about what the perceptions towards mental health is in um, Austria and the patients that you're seeing and how they've kind of felt about this new area of research coming out and also um, quite a big question here but also how your colleagues have received um, your interest in this area of research have they been supportive or skeptical 
Um, in Austria, there there is like a, a government-run healthcare system, so we are really lucky that everyone has health insurance and mental health services are also available to everyone. Um, I guess uh, there is still much of mental health-related stigma in Austria. So most people are still afraid of patients with mental disorders, uh, especially schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, for example. They don't know uh, uh, how to handle these diseases and uh, what they are about. And um, so there is uh, much suspicion there and uh, much stigma. But um, I think in regards to food and mood, there is... Not much research in Austria. I think we are the only research group at all in my country that focuses on nutritional and psychiatric disorders. Um, psychiatrists in my country have no training at all in nutrition. And um, of course, uh, the aim of our group is to change this in the years to come. Um, in the clinical setting, we found out that um, our patients are really interested uh, in, in, in food and mood, and uh, they are. Uh, we are running a group therapy for our patients on nutritional psychiatry. This is always fully booked. So for the patients, this approach is widely accepted. And the patients are empowered also to change their mental health with nutritional interventions. And yeah, to my best knowledge, I think we are the only psychiatry department so far with focus. And, um, uh, and in regard to my colleagues, some... Um, strongly agree with this approach and uh, some uh, really um, yeah, yeah, some really like it and uh, and also integrate it in their clinical practice but there are also like uh, others mainly uh, the old professors and you know Austria is the country where psychoanalysis came from and um, I think um, to see psychiatric disorders also from a nutritional point of view is something really new and I had like uh, some people uh, that would contradict or refuse as well but I think that's uh, that's uh, uh, a thing that can happen with every every new research specialty so there are some professors at my university that would consider uh, research on nutrition and that brain access still is something esoteric but um, I think uh, uh, as we as we know now, uh, the research in the last years has shown uh, this is not the truth, and we should integrate nutritional approaches in our healthcare system. Mm. It's such an interesting history. I completely forgot psychoanalysis. Um, yeah, analysis originated there. Wow, very interesting yeah. history. And Megan, tell us about the situation in Australia. I know that you guys are actually spearheading uh, the nutritional psychiatry field, and you've mentioned before that Professor Felice Jacker is uh, a mentor to you. So tell us about the kind of attitudes in Australia at the moment towards nutritional psychiatry. So we're really lucky in Australia to have um, Professor Felice Jacker um, as head of um, nutritional psychiatry. She's the queen of nutritional psychiatry. We all love her. And she's always got time to mentor um, nutritional psychiatrists and researchers who are in the field. Um, they have the Food and Mood Centre um, in Geelong where um, a lot of the work is being done in Australia and we're, we're really, really lucky. And I was really... Um, shocked when I started my PhD and I, and I was like yes I'm really interested in food and mood I'm really interested in the brain and how um, diet affects the brain and I was shocked to find out that the first paper that ever had 
really been written on like whole of dietary patterns and depression um, happened in 2008. So it was just within the last decade that this is really becoming something that's really important. But the sad fact in Australia is that we find it really, really difficult to get funding for our research um it's hard to get a grant it's hard to when we come up against big pharma and we're um suggesting lifestyle changes as a treatment or prevention option for mental health who makes money out of that Mm. do you know what i mean so that's kind of what we come up against a little bit um we've been really really lucky recently where um felice did get um and the food and mood center work granted an NHMRC grant so um, it's looking good on the horizons for nutritional psychiatry here in Australia. Mm. And a question to both of you why do you think this area has been so overlooked if you go back to ancient Greek times when Hippocrates said let food be thy medicine why do you think that it has been so overlooked in modern healthcare? Could I answer that one? Sure. Is that okay? Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, the, the theoretical framework that my um, PhD kind of rests on answers this question, and it goes all the way back to Descartes, who suggested this biomedical model that we're where the the current medical model is resting on, where the brain and the body were kind of separate mm. entities. The body was. Um, the body is like looked after by physicians and the brain is looked after by psychiatrists and psychologists and never the two shall meet. But we're now starting to see, and Sabrina should agree with me here, that the gut microbiome is so, so linked to the brain and that um, that system is so intertwined that we can't be treating the brain with our psychologists alone anymore we need mm. to be integrating holistic practitioners we need dietitians nutritionists we need exercise physiologists physiologists we need um, mindfulness experts we need a whole group of people to be looking at ways to treat um, mental illness i think mm-hmm And I can completely relate to what you're saying. And it's so interesting that you're actually writing about this in your PhD because I did a philosophy module in my uh, medical humanities BSc last year. And we had to write all about the mind-body split and Descartes and body as machine and, you know, how this actually had such a huge impact on how our healthcare system works today and the rise of specialties and subspecialties and everything just becoming very much um, categorized and not linked and you're losing that interconnectivity and things are just becoming siloed off and you're seeing body as machine and pharmaceutical or surgery uh, intervention to treat body as machine rather than looking at body and mind as one entity and applying holistic interventions like you say mindfulness nutrition etc so it's absolutely fascinating the paradigm shift that um, we're starting to see and I think it's so important for better outcomes for patients Sabrina do you have anything to add on this uh, I can I can only agree with this. I think it, it really makes no sense to see mind and body as a separate system. Um, my university has like the biopsychosocial treatment model, and uh, and I 
think it's true for like every psychiatric disorder that uh, it's always multifactorial and multifactorial diseases need to be treated in a multifactorial way. So it would really make no sense uh, to just uh, divide uh, mind and the body. This vision is, is something really artificial and uh, I think we, we really need to, uh, to look at those diseases in a more holistic way and uh, it's my wish uh, that uh, this will be like uh, the medicine of the future that we will work together in a multidisciplinary team and um, and therefore uh, improve uh, our patients' lives. Absolutely. And so you've mentioned, um, you've mentioned, Sabrina, that patients have an appetite for this. There's a huge demand for this kind of therapy and for this advice coming from healthcare professionals. So I want to ask both of you who are both involved in uh, nutrition education when it comes to medical students and um, healthcare professionals, is there an appetite for this type of education amongst these students? So Megan, I know you work with midwives and physios and osteopaths and everything in Australia. And Sabrina, you work with medical students and obviously more tra- uh, trainee psychiatrists. So is there an appetite amongst them? I would say there's definitely an appetite. In, in 2018, we started our first elective course for students on nutritional psychiatry in the gut brain axis. And since then, we are always fully booked. I think we are the only psychiatrists in Austria teaching nutritional approaches. And last year, uh, we got a teaching award for that. Uh, and uh, this was really good to see that finally something is going in a, in a really good direction. Um, but still, nutrition is, is not a mandatory part of medical education in Austria. Most of the students in my country have never heard anything about nutrition in their whole uh, med school career. And um, so we always have to start with the basics. And the current medical curriculum in Austria does not cover nutrition at all. It focuses more on pathology and pharmacological approaches and psychopharmacology and so on. And uh, if you open a student textbook for psychiatry, you will not find a single word on nutrition in there. And uh, this is something that's that's really sad. And also nutritional uh, approaches are not uh, considered in the Austrian treatment guidelines for depression, for, for example. Also, in my opinion, there is now enough evidence that supports uh, uh, the, the value of nutritional interventions. And um, so I think uh, it will be like a long way till nutrition will be a mandatory part of the medical education system in Austria. But um, yeah, my group and me decided we want to be part of the solution and not part of the problems. So we will continue teaching. And we started to uh, write a German textbook on nutritional psychiatry the last month. So um, we hope that we can change the education system in Austria a little bit. Can you help change the education system in the UK too? <laughs> Sounds like we need more of you here. Um, I don't know anyone in the UK. I know lots of, um, as you know, I'm doing the UK um, podcast episode of UK psychiatrists who have an interest in nutritional psychiatry, but no one's really written a nutritional psychiatry textbook and are trying to make a change to the actual education landscape. So I couldn't applaud you more. And I hope that there's going to be an English translation of the textbook. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Yeah, we'll start with German, but then maybe there will be an 
Yeah, that would be great. And um, Megan, tell us about your work and what you've recently been commissioned to do by your university with helping the healthcare students. Yeah, so at Southern Cross University, we really want to streamline our um, healthcare professional students into looking at things that are a little bit more uh, biopsychosocial. So we want to kind of steer away from that biomedical model. And there are a few of the units that I am involved in where we are developing more nutrition education, which is really, really great to see. Um, and we're really trying to make it so that um, the students are able to understand that everything that is biological is psychological, is also sociological. And so some of the time when uh, clients or patients come in to see them with physical ailments, <clears throat> looking at those other parts of their life, um, the, the internal, the external world, um, can really shift the way we see um, physical outcomes. And so, and the students really love learning about these things because they can apply it to their lives as well. So not only are they using it to educate themselves for what they can um, take out into the field, but it's something that they can use to enhance their own lives as well, which is really great to see. And they really love it. And yeah, that's what's important. It will be more sustainable if exactly like you say, the students love it and, you know, they want to carry on doing it. So it's, yeah, brilliant work. So moving on to the research segment of this episode, there's been a lot of research in nutritional psychiatry looking at the interaction between nutrition and depression in particular, especially the pivotal trials of SMILES and Healthy Med, which show that different versions of the Mediterranean diet can actually improve depressive symptoms and moderate inflammatory responses to stress. So, um, Megan, I'd love for you to tell our audience a little bit about these trials and any other interesting uh, trials that you want to mention. But before we go into the details of each trial, can you just start by defining what the Mediterranean diet is to our audience um, and just really mapping it out and how the Australian studies actually modified it? Okay, so the Mediterranean dietary pattern, it's a little bit different to the way that we eat in, in Western society. We eat lots of ultra-processed, refined and sugary foods in our countries, in the UK, in the USA and in Australia. And the Mediterranean dietary pattern is a little bit different. So they have foods that are quite rich, like fresh fruit, vegetables, nuts, seeds, legumes, whole grains, lots of water. They have a little bit of... Uh, meat, a moderate amount of meat, mostly fish, oily fish. Um, they have a lot of extra virgin olive oil in their diets and small amounts of dark chocolate and red wine with meals. They also have this social context that we're kind of lacking in our individualized system, our Uber Eats kind of lifestyles that we lead in Western, Western society these days. Um, but the Mediterranean dietary pattern has has a lot of evidence based on um, it being really, really beneficial for other chronic lifestyle diseases like cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, some forms of cancer, obesity, metabolic syndrome, all of those. And so we believe and the research is now showing that the Mediterranean dietary pattern is also having um, some really, really good effects on mental health illness like depression. So the Healthy Med trial led 
Natalie Paletta and the Smiles Trial led by um, Professor Felice Jacker, they both happened at the same time unbeknownst to each other, which is really funny. Um, they were published in 2017, so they're only about two years old. Um, both trials um, are the only two randomised control trials that have ever been undertaken on dietary patterns and depression. And they took a group of participants who are self-reported as having symptoms of depression and they split them into two. The uh, intervention group was given uh, nutritional classes and um, ideas on how to um, adhere to a Mediterranean dietary pattern and differences between the Western and Mediterranean dietary pattern. Um, the Healthy Men trial also added uh, extra virgin olive oil, I believe, to the trial. And they had a few more participants in um, the Healthy Men trial than they did in the Smiles trial. But the best thing about both these trials is that they both had almost identical results. So the people that were in the intervention group that um, were given the nutritional classes and went and tried to adhere to the Mediterranean dietary pattern, they had uh, 30% of them actually had remission from their depressive symptoms. So no longer were um, diagnosable as having depression in comparison to 8% of the control group. And the control group just had like a social, um, they were a social group. Because one of the things that happens in research is that uh, on depression is that when you have uh, when you have like attention from the researchers and you're also in a group of people who are in a similar situation to yourself, that can also improve your symptoms. So we need they needed to have a social control group that had the same um, sorts of attention from researchers and contact with each other. But um, such great. Um, and amazing results from both the trials who got almost the same, um, exact same result doing them at the same time. Absolutely extraordinary how that kind of happens, that two great ideas happen along the same time. And what country did the research take in uh, uh, for the Healthy Med? What was, yeah, what country uh, led that they, research? They were both in Australia. They were both in, in Australia, yeah, okay, amazing. Victoria, one was in South Australia, mm. I believe, yeah. Wow, you guys really are ahead of the game. And so, Sabrina, do you actually have a look? Sorry, let me start again. Sabrina, do you look at this research and then look at the principles and try and translate it to the patients that you see? Yes, uh, uh, exactly. Those two trials, SMELS and the Health Med trial, I was completely impressed when I uh, read these papers two years ago. And uh, this is when I started recommending the Mediterranean diet to the patients on my ward. Um, we also implemented this. There is a concept called Eat the Rainbow. So uh, this is uh, that we tell our patients to include at least five colors on their plate. And also add like, uh, like extra virgin olive oil and nuts and seeds to their diet. And um, I think this really makes a difference. So, um, yeah, so for me, uh, the take home mm. message here is definitely recommend the Mediterranean diet for patients with depression and anxiety disorders. That's brilliant. And definitely something not just for patients, but something that is a take home message for ourselves. How do you feel that um, you take on the principles of this research in your everyday life? Obviously, when you're not doing back to back night shifts, Sabrina. <laughs> 
do you take on the principles in your own eating? Yes, I, I at least I try. I try to eat in a Mediter- kind of Mediterranean style diet. Um, the Austrian diet is not the healthiest one, um, I must say. So still, uh, I think the Austrian diet is yeah. We, we use like very um, yeah traditional cooking style. So uh, calorie rich foods, lots of carbs, and also lots of sweet stuff. So if you advise uh, to patients and also are uh, more in a in a Mediterranean way, sometimes a uh, very yeah a huge switch for them, and it uh, it takes some time for them to to train this other eating style. So um, yeah, I would say that the Austrian dietary style and the Mediterranean style quite differ <laughs> from each other. It's really interesting that because with you know with these diets that are so profound in the research you have to make it applicable for the culture that you're living in and so um have you managed to kind of still cook with Austrian Austrian flavors and Austrian dishes but just kind of learn how to modify them applying the Mediterranean diet principles um yes i think it's it, it's it is possible you know uh, in austria sometimes we, we use uh i think what's the english name for that i think it's called lard lard as a cooking fat so sure. uh, from pigs and uh i think you can just exchange at least for some meals uh with with olive oil with a more healthier version and also in terms of uh, vegetables and fruit consumption so you can like uh, I think sneak in some vegetables in favorite Austrian dishes. So <laughs> there is a possibility to make them like more Mediterranean. <laughs> That's wonderful to hear. And Megan, with the research being done in Australia, how did uh, the researchers modify the Mediterranean diet to make it more suited and passable to the Australian participants? You might have to ask Professor Felice Jacker about that one. I have no idea how they actually modified the diet. <laughs> I think I read something in her book in Game Changers. It was just about in brain change. In what's it called again? The brain changer. Brain changer. Brain changer. Yeah. Um, around just kind of making um substitutions with the fish to more lean meats i think because it suited um the australian population more it was vastly similar i think it was just where there was fish they made it more lean meats um and Do you know what's really funny about that sorry ali go for it but in australia we have this expansive coastline yes of, surrounded by the ocean and there's lots of it and we all live on the outskirts of of the coastline we all live on the coast because it's beautiful and not very many of us live inside of australia but we have one of the lowest rates of consumption of seafood in the world it's crazy that is mental it's insane i know when you're offered it i can't believe that i honestly can't believe it but but there we go there we go okay so um moving back to the research so Megan, with actually conducting nutrition research, can you just explain the to our listeners the issues when it comes to producing high quality nutrition research and how difficult it actually is to apply the randomized control study model to nutrition studies? I think yeah, I think it's an area that really needs to be addressed. Yeah, we do actually have a problem because 
when we think about it, if you're going to run a randomised control trial, the best way to run one is to have your participants blind to what interve- to whether they're in the intervention or the control, and that's kind of impossible with food-related or nutrition-related because you always know which of the dietary patterns you are consuming. So it's very difficult, number one, to blind the participants. It's very difficult to blind the researchers. Um, we also, because in um, dietary patterns and depression research, most of the time um, depression is self-reported mm-hmm. by the participants and it's very, very difficult to um, recruit people who are um, clinically diagnosed with depression. Um, they're hard to recruit. Um, the cohort is also hard to keep in side of a trial especially when it goes for a long period of time and you need to do a dietary pattern trial over an extensive period of time because you want to see the changes in the um over the over the weeks or the months that it takes for dietary changes to improve the symptoms so there's all these um unfortunate things that um make nutritional psychiatry research quite difficult Mm. and there are only two of them (laughs) (laughs) it's really challenging and sabrina with your phd and just with your clinical practice have you found this as well um yes um for i I did some cross-sectional studies you know on on the gut microbiome and in anorexia nervosa and so we 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 have not done many interventionals yet we had we had a study um called the pro study where we have given probiotics uh over a course of four weeks and um what we've seen there um yes at first it's it's really difficult to um to yeah get the patients engaged because in, in case of the probiotic of course they had to take it like every day very early in the morning first thing they took in the morning was this probiotic drink and um it was like really hard to uh, when they were severely depressed to get them out of bed in the morning and make them drink the probiotics so um this is one of the, of the challenges we, we see here and also in, in gut microbiome studies you know you need like a stool sample for 16s sequencing and uh this is also a problem like uh, in terms of collecting and freezing and and stuff and um, also because of the, of the time frame so there are many research mm-hmm. uh, challenges uh, there because we also know for example with the gut microbiome that there are um um, variations during the day so it's it's really difficult to uh uh, to get the samples at the right time and um i think but this is this is one of the problems we always have uh, with patients uh with um with uh mental health issues so um that there is sometimes really a lack of compliance and um yeah, and yeah, this is what we what we face. But nevertheless, it's, it's worth researching. And the future will need more interventional trials. So what we have now, most of them in regard to gut microbiome are cross-sectional. And of course, it's interesting to see what um, what what impact nutrition or probiotics have on the gut microbiome in the long term. Sabrina brings up a really good point about um, research that's done um, like cross-sectional research and that's usually done by sending out questionnaires or surveys and in nutritional psychiatry 
probably 95% of the research is observational. So it is survey driven. And one of the things that we have problems with in survey driven nutritional research is that to find out what someone has eaten, you've either got to ask them uh, what they've eaten in the last 24 hours and get a recall, or we do a food frequency questionnaire where we ask them what they've eaten in the last week or how often they eat things across the last month. And in anything that is self-report, it's really, really difficult to get an accurate measure of what people eat. It really is. Um, if you think about what did you eat this time last week, could you tell me? <laughs> Not in any shape or form. And could you tell me exactly what components you ate? And so this is what <laughs> it's like doing um, nutrition surveys. And even if people aren't trying to put their best foot forward, which we mostly do when we're taking surveys, we want people to think that we are our best selves. Even if we're not doing that, we're still, there's a lot of bias involved in, or maybe I won't put down that Mars bar that I ate two weeks ago and I just forget about that. Or I know what the dietary guidelines are. I'm supposed to eat two serves of fruit a day and five serves of vegetables. So when I'm asked a question about how many fruit and vegetable I eat, I'll revert to what I know I'm supposed to eat. And so this is the, a really big problem mm-hmm. in all nutritional yeah, research. Yeah, I can agree with that because when we handed out our food frequency questionnaires to the anorexia nervosa patients, there was so much under-reporting or over-reporting and uh, you can read it and ask yourself, are these results still valid or not? And um, this is one of the, of the challenges for nutritional research, I think. So Sabrina, how do you overcome this? How do you overcome this with the research you've done and with, um, you know, your clinical uh, ward in on the psychiatry units when you are using nutrition as an intervention with your patients? How do you actually do follow up? Mm-hmm. Um, we we have like um, a dietary plan, so and we try, of course, to offer the patients those foods that are, uh, that are uh, that are healthy. So there is like fruit on the board, there's vegetable vegetables they can they can freely take. But but one thing, of course, we still have, and I'm fighting against those. I was fighting against those in the last years are still this vendor, I think they're called vendor machines. So yes, vending like, machines. Uh, have your Coke and chocolate and, and stuff and uh, it's available 24-7. And uh, this is uh, one still one of the big problems. Mm-hmm. But because um, many of the patients with depression have this... Um, this craving for sweets, and uh, this is because of the of the tryptophan serotonin deficiency. So at night, um, many patients like get up, go to those vendor machines, and uh, have their chocolate and coke, and uh, and 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 this is like really the problem. And of course, they don't report this in the food frequency questionnaires we give them. And um, this is also one of the reasons why sometimes um, animal studies are more reliable in terms of to study the gut brain axis mechanistically because you can uh, you can like monitor what what animals eat, but uh, mm. but it's always more difficult if you study a complex uh, multidimensional system like a human being, and you cannot monitor patients twenty four seven on an open board. So <laughs> yes, I think uh, it will remain challenging, but nevertheless. Um, 
um, yeah, we, we do our best to overcome these issues, but we, I think we have not found the perfect solution yet. <laughs> No, you make such a good point how we always look down on animal studies, but you're right, it's so hard to control a human, especially a human who's going through an incredibly challenging time with their mental illness. And so I think what you both are mentioning are that not only are there issues within how the research structures are in terms of finding it very difficult to do randomised controlled trials in nutrition and to monitor uh, patients and make sure that they do stay compliant with the dietary pattern prescribed and that they stay contained within the trial. But also, Sabrina, you talk about the actual environmental structural issues like the hospital food environment, which I find fascinating. And I've actually um, got a podcast coming out in this season as well where medical students in the UK actually did a research study on the impact of vending machines and food out like fast food outlets uh, in the hospital environment and the impact it has on patients and I think it's so interesting because you know you've got these thought leaders like yourself who are trying so hard to really apply this emerging um, evidence basis of nutritional psychiatry to the patients but then what about you know the cardiovascular ward what about all the other hospital wards in your hospital where hospital food is still quite nutritionally poor and the it, it must be having a huge impact on their mood as well which you know I'm only making assumptions here but it will probably impact their recovery and you know their willingness to uh, be empowered to be compliant with their medication so I just wanted to kind of hear your thoughts on this and how you think the food environment actually does make such a huge difference yeah uh, in, in Austria we I think we have like really not uh, our hospital nutrition is not that bad but there is definitely room for improvement and um as, as a gut brain access researcher, I know that, um, that what we eat uh, definitely can change the way patients uh, think, how they feel, and also their food cravings and stuff. And also, not only for uh, for psychiatric disorders, but also for every other disorder. So, you are completely right uh, for those with metabolic syndrome or uh, with cardiovascular disorders. It would be, uh, it, I think, it would make such, uh, such a difference if we really served. Mediterranean style diet in the hospital, but this is not the case yet. Uh, in Austria, in my hospital here in Graz, I must say that uh, uh, that like a fast food um, restaurant opened at the hospital ground. So like uh, next next to the hospital, there there's this new fast food restaurants, and so many patients are are going there. And um, I think yeah, it's it's like really something that. Um, that interferes with with the treatments that uh, makes makes it so much worse. And I think that uh, the patients somehow they they know, but uh, they don't know how huge this impact is. So that that what what they eat can really change uh, the way how fast they are getting better. And um, so I think it's uh, it's uh, def- definitely um, very important to. Um, yeah, to, to more nutritional interventions in, in, in the hospital setting and also tell them that um, that, uh, that it matters what they eat. Mm. You know, we're coming up against so many barriers because 
you know, you are a clinician who's already engaged in this and is already practicing it, but there's a whole barrier in trying to get a whole medical education system changed so that, like you say, in psychiatry textbooks, in um, medical education, students and future doctors are taught around the importance of nutrition as an intervention. So we're coming up against that mindset and educational barrier, but then we're also coming up against the actual food environment barrier, and that is so much harder almost to overcome with actual actually you know changing big food and how it operates in our environment and you know that's that's where the money is and how hospitals can actually make money as well so it is a huge challenge and very blue sky thinking to want um hospital food to all be uh mediterranean style based it would be the dream and i think it would make a huge difference to recovery but I guess it's one thing at a time. Um, Megan, is this a similar issue in Australia in hospital? Do you know about the food situation? Yeah, it is exactly the same. And it's not just hospitals here. It's also aged care facilities and mental health care facilities where um, these systematic problems are being found. Um, I have recently been talking to friends of mine who are accredited practicing dietitians in a mental health facility in Australia, and they were saying that part of the problem is that when people are feeling so sad and so depressed that getting them to eat anything is a problem, Mm -hmm. let alone trying to get them to eat something that's healthy. So sometimes the first step is getting them to eat anything at all. And then there's this really... um, bi-directional relationship between depression and food so we can say in our research or we find that um you know healthier dietary patterns or unhealthy dietary patterns are contributing to the symptoms of depression but what we really don't know is which way the causal effect is because when you're feeling depressed Mm. and sad the last thing you want to do is eat a salad and so we don't know whether it's the depression itself that is causing the bad dietary habits or whether the bad dietary habits and then exacerbating the depressive symptoms. So it's this really bi-directional um, kind of chicken and the egg scenario mm-hmm. that we have. Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more with that. And I did, I, I've told you about that research paper that I wrote um, in my second year of medical school, looking at the relationship between um the patients with major depressive disorder who are also obese and the relationship with nutrition and it's the same issue chicken and egg with are you depressed and you go for and you're an emotional eater i was looking at a subset of emotional eaters and then you eat unhealthy foods because you're depressed and put on weight or are you already overweight and you know because of self-esteem or whatnot you then become depressed so it is just so confusing to kind of figure this all out and it probably is a variety of both um and so sabrina i was wondering what your take is on this yeah um i i definitely agree but i think it's it's not that important what was there first because there are many like Mm. scientists um discussing and quarreling what was there first either depression or the bad eating habits but um i think uh, once again, we have to see here depression as a multifactorial disorder and then use a multifactorial treatment strategy. And a part of this strategy is like practicing self-care. And um, of course, uh, the, the disease, the depression as a disease does not 
like self-care and um, and therefore uh, our patients need to be trained in that and self-care includes uh, a healthy eating habit so um, and uh, and therefore as, I think as psychiatrists and also as nutritionists on, on the work um, they um, they need to like to get the patient in the direction that they can make the or help them to, uh, to make the more healthy choices and uh, I think self-care is something that can be trained mm-hmm. but like Megan brings up and a question I get all the time and that I ask experts like yourselves if a patient cannot even get out of bed to go to the loo or you know to just go for a walk how do we expect them to you know kind of adapt to these healthy eating habits what do you say to that? How do you meet the patient where they are at and assess their readiness for change and help get them on that trajectory? I think in, in the beginning, of course, if the patient has a very severe uh, depression, um, this healthy food has to be provided because you cannot expect uh, a patient then to uh, like get up in the morning, go to the kitchen and prepare food themselves. So uh, what we need to do there at, in, in a psychiatric ward it is provide healthy food and uh, then uh, then move slowly and, and step by step um, with, with with good meal plans and uh, we know that uh, for every neurotransmitter in our body to be produced we we need uh, the the nutritional part so we need uh we need the carbs we we, we need uh, uh we, we we need uh also the fiber our gut microbiome needs uh, like stuff to ferment and also to produce all these protein fatty acids and and stuff that are so, that is so important for gut brain access and also gut barrier and to lower inflammation so um i think the first step is to provide uh, our patients with the food they need and um, and also to tell them that it has long-term impact on the body and uh, maybe also helps for the medication to work. And so if we're not talking about inpatients, what about outpatients? How do we help those with slightly more mild to moderate depression uh, with these healthy habits when they're not in a controlled setting where it's being provided for them? Do you... Yeah. yeah. So do you see, yeah, when you see patients in an outpatient setting, how do you help them? Um, yeah, um, we have like um, a, a, an open group like uh, for uh, for outpatients where they can uh, like visit visit our, our department like for, for individual group sessions. Um, this is this has just started, so I have no long-term experience uh, with with that. And uh, what I started to do is uh, when I see my outpatients and write my doctor's letters, that I always have like a paragraph in there uh, giving nutritional advice. And um, this is like this was my way to start, and I will see how it develops because it, this is something really unusual to find in a. In a, in a letter uh, in a, in a, uh, or in a, a psychiatric um, doctor letter in Austria. <laughs> and anywhere around the world. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> 
And so have you seen a kind of appetite for group consultations when it comes to um, kind of behavioural changes around uh, diet? Have you seen an appetite for this? It's something that is being trialled in the UK for things like management of type 2 diabetes, getting that kind of peer-to-peer support and um, peer learning. Yes, uh, I think that that for patients it's much easier, you know, to be like in a group and discuss the issues they share, um, uh, so they don't feel like uh, alone, like in a warrior mm. in a battle. Uh, they they are then like um, discussing all the things uh, together, and they find um, group therapies are really interesting as well because they find like solutions themselves. Sometimes it's much easier to take on, you know, from peers and not like from uh, a doctor or a psychiatrist who is preaching all the healthy uh, foodstuff. <laughs> Absolutely. I think there's probably that element of trust and relatability that you don't really get, unfortunately, with your clinician because that's just the, you know, service kind of relationship that makes it a bit of a barrier in itself. And so moving on to your gut microbiome research, which I find so fascinating, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the findings you've come across when it comes to microbiome dysregulation in patients with anorexia nervosa? Um, yeah, uh, this was the 2000 study we published in the International Journal of Eating Disorders, and it was one of the first cross-sectional studies um, uh, describing gut microbiome alterations in anorexia. And um, this is, of course, really important because anorexia nervosa is still uh, the, the number one psychiatric disorder where we have no psychopharmacological therapies that really work, and uh, uh, in some cases, psychosomatic therapy does not work either. And what we found here is that indeed there are severe alterations of the gut microbiome composition and uh, something called alpha diversity, so the number of different species that occur in uh, in the microbiome sample is particularly lower in anorexia nervosa patients, but also um, at the other extreme of the BMI range. So we, in, in our study, we included 106 participants from every BMI group, so with different body mass index. Mm-hmm. And uh, in anorexia and in obese participants, um, these alpha diversity, this species richness was particularly lower. And we also found that, for example, body fat, serum lipids, uh, inflammatory scales, and depressive scales were associated with community structures. So this was something really incredible to see. Wow, that is honestly just so incredible to hear. It's it's just like a whole other layer to the illness to actually, you know, be able to analyse their gut microbiome and really be able to make kind of assumptions based on it. It's fascinating. And so do you think that this research will actually be able to change the way we treat and diagnose patients with anorexia nervosa? I think maybe in the future, you know, Mm. because the gut microbiome is such a huge internal environment. When I was studying in Cork last year, I was like, for six months, I I spent in Cork at the APC Microbiome Institute, 
and um, I was there with, I think, the most influential microbiome researchers of our, of our time, Professor Steinen and Professor Brian. And Professor Steinen once said that the gut microbiome is something like our collective unconscious. So um, I'm really um, interested to see what the future will bring in this mm. field because up to now there are not many studies on gut microbiome composition in anorexia mm. and of course we could not identify like a single bacterial germ or a family responsible for anorexia nervosa so maybe the future will will uh, uh, will bring us to the point where we can even diagnose and uh, also then uh, treat uh, uh, psychiatric disorders such as anorexia with uh, probiotic or prebiotic interventions such as FMT, for example, so this fecal microbiota transplantation has been proposed as treatment for anorexia nervosa. But uh, as far as I know, there are now just case reports published. So uh, there is uh, not much research on that topic. Oh, my mind is actually blown. It's, it's so extraordinary. And um, when it comes to fecal microbial um, transplant, what other... Uh, where else is this applied in what other conditions I know for instance um, we talk about it with is it C. difficile or um, other, yes yeah. I think there is the only um, uh, uh, yeah the only indication for it in Austria is uh, uh, this tridium difficile infection mm. but uh, we have a trial now at our university uh, where we use it for irritable bowel syndrome and uh, we are just now uh, doing the statistical analysis uh, for this trial. And uh, what interested me as a psychiatrist is how all the uh, psychological and, um, and also depressive scales change uh, when FMT is applied. So FMT is basically you take like a stool from a healthy donor and then transplant it to uh, people with an illness. And uh, what I'm really interested to see is, for example, if the gut microbiome and the composition can change, um, for example, sleep patterns, mood, anxiety scales, and so on. Mm -hmm. And what are the barriers to FMP besides, you know, in our culture, it being quite a bizarre thing to talk about feces as a as a treatment. It's a very interesting one because I know um, I th I remember talking to a patient about it um, because they actually brought it up and they were really up for it because uh, they had a lot of chronic fatigue and they'd gone to there's a center in the UK I think in Stonehenge or somewhere that offers yeah. FMP and she was saying her, her family and so she had it and her family would just couldn't understand it and was so grossed out by it so so besides that kind of em emotional response to fmp what are the other barriers do you think yeah i think for some it's like a last resort treatment you know uh, when nothing else works then this is like the last thing they try uh, another barrier i think is uh, from a medical point of view we don't know yet what a healthy gut microbiome looks like. Mm, so mm. We cannot really say uh, who is the best one, like who is the best stool donor right. for it. Well, there are some like they are called super donors um, with uh, a, a very healthy gut uh, uh, environment. But uh, of course, you cannot screen uh, the donors for every possible disease. And um, so I think 
I think also it, it, it really depends on, on the donor and, and, and you have to, to look at that and uh, the barriers in the years to come. I think that FMT for psychiatric implications will only be possible like in very severe disorders, mm. for example, anorexia nervosa um, or very severe treatment-resistant depression uh, because, of course, it's a very uh, new way to treat uh, patients and we don't know the long-term effects sure and so when you say it's for treatment resistant it just reminds me of you know electroconvulsive therapy as that kind of last resort treatment and would you say that we know the long-term effects of ect or you know could you kind of make an argument to say fmt and you know could be something like an ect uh, yeah, for, for ECT, we know uh, the effects since, I think it was, ECT was developed in 1933 in Italy, so we have like long-term studies mm. for ECT, but we don't have it for FMT, and we know that ECT works also in a multifactorial way, so if you like apply ECT to a patient, it, it does not only like uh, work on the neurotransmitter systems, it, has, it also has impact on all the second messages. And I think also on the vagal nerve function. And for FMT, it might be similar because if you transplant a, a whole a gut microbiome community structure, um, then uh, you see, of, of course, profound alterations in, in, in short chain fatty acid levels, also in the way the vagal nerve, so the 10th cranial nerve, works, and also in the immune system. So it, I think both treatments can be regarded as a multi that is so fascinating and so moving on um moving away from anorexia nervosa i know that you've extensively studied patients by with bipolar disorder too can you just tell our listeners a bit about um your work there and the use of probiotics in their treatment um, yes, uh, we did the study together with the team of Professor Reininghaus at Moy University, where we studied the impact of probiotics on bipolar disorder uh, in a depressive episode. So this was the uh, probit study. The results are not published yet, uh, but they are hopefully soon to be published. So we had like 82 patients here and uh, randomly assigned them to receive either a multi-string probiotic or a placebo for 28 days. And uh, then we collected clinical symptoms and neurobiological markers at the beginning and the end uh, of the study. And uh, I can tell what we found. So um, in the probiotic group, there was change in the community structure of, uh, of the gut microbiome after four weeks. We also found that several inflammation regulatory pathways were changed. But um, there was, after four weeks, no change in species richness, and also um, both groups like improved the same. So the placebo group and the probiotic group um, uh, did like uh, uh, they both did well after four weeks of, uh, of of treatment, and there was no significant difference in that. So what I think is uh, that one point for that could be that. Uh, responsible for this could be the hospital diet i think probiotics it might be the same with antidepressants that probiotics uh, may work even better when there is a, a right dietary background very interesting and when when do you think it'll be published 
Um, we we have written our manuscript and we will uh, we will submit it next week. So I think exciting. Our first, then <laughs> I think in one month for something it could be published if we are lucky. <laughs> And so I also wanted to just get your take from both of you. Um, would you say that any mental illness can now be considered as metabopsychiatric? Do you think that we can actually say that? Yeah, Megan, would you, would you like to start or shall I? <laughs> I think... No, you go uh, for it, Sabrina. Okay. Uh, yes, I think every... Uh, yeah, I, I like the term metabopsychiatric, um, but uh, there is no there is no psychiatric disorder which has no met uh, which has hasn't a metabolic implication. We know this uh, from the PGC consortium that that uh, uh, indeed. Um, like all psychiatric disorders uh, show genetic alterations also in uh, in terms of metabolic traits, lipid traits, and uh, uh, that are independent of effects we see with this variance associated with the body mass index. So um, I think it's, uh, we see it genetically, psychiatric disorders are more connected with each other than, for example, neurological disorders. So it's mm. very likely the different phenotypes share the same pathophysiological pathways. And I would consider every uh, psychiatric disorder as a metabolic uh, disorder. So if we're thinking that every psychiatric disorder can be considered as metabopsychiatric, do we think that there are pharmaceutical solutions that can actually help this rather than uh, solely looking at nutritional interventions uh, like probiotics, the work you're doing? As I read the book by um, Professor Edward Bulmore, um, who's a professor of psychiatry at Cambridge, and he wrote the book The Inflamed Mind, which and he does a lot of work with uh, GSK, uh, the, ph the pharmaceutical company, and he's looking at how anti-inflammatory medication could potentially be made to help treat depression and other inflammatory uh, disorders that have that psychiatric component. So what do you think about this? What do you think about this, the pharmaceutical approach? Um, I think pharmaceutical, the pharmaceutical approach is worthwhile if we want to see like um, um, short-term effects. But I think for psychiatric disorders, it's it's necessary to tackle inflammation in the long run. Mm. And um, therefore, I would say it's uh, most likely it's uh, it's the best solution to combine. Uh, Absolutely. In a, in a severe depressive episode, for example. Um, uh, anti-inflammatory agents uh, with dietary agents because both uh, both of them change the gut microbiome and the gut microbiome has a huge epigenetic potential and uh, this very likely contributes to the metabolic changes and the inflammatory changes we see in, in our patients so we again we need to see it from a multifactorial perspective Yes, and I, I couldn't agree more with what you said. I think, you know, medication has its place and it's all about the context. So some, if someone, like we say, can't get out of bed to do anything in that, in that severe acute crisis stage, then of course, pharmaceuticals would be so useful to help uh, get them to a stage where they have a sense of readiness to take on long-term dietary and behavioral changes. So I definitely think they're complementary to each other as well. So um, moving on to some of Megan's research, 
I know that you've done quite a bit on uh, body image and looking at it over time in postpartum women and that with your work you um, look at the concept of intuitive eating as well. So if you could just tell our listeners a bit about this because I think it's so important that we really start to understand this concept of intuitive eating. So if you could just start defining it and you know talking about where it comes from. Yeah, sure, no problem. So intuitive eating is basically uh, listening to your body's internal cues to tell you when you're hungry, when you're full. And it's really all about kind of losing this weight-focused thinking. So back, way back in the 80s, all these um, diet fads started to come out. There was like the Atkins diet. Now we've got the keto diet, the paleo diet. We've got all these diets because people are constantly trying to lose weight and unfortunately what we are finding in our research on dieting and food restriction is that um, food restriction is really not a long-term solution to weight loss to body image um, satisfaction to um, psychological well-being and so a reaction to that was the whole intuitive eating um, kind of um, movement that happened and so we did a um a survey on postpartum women because postpartum women are at a really vulnerable stage in their lives where they may have been thin pre-pregnancy or fit pre-pregnancy and then when you are pregnant society accepts you for having a larger body because you're growing a child within it and it's acceptable but as soon as you hit that postpartum period where you've had your baby there's all these messages in the media that are telling you that you need to get back to your pre-pregnancy weight almost immediately there's there's celebrities like the Kardashians who like almost instantly lose their baby weight and this is putting these really unrealistic types of um, expectations on on everyday women and so we were finding that this um, really important time because uh, postpartum women who were striving to get back to their pre-pregnancy weight were experiencing um, disordered eating behaviors they were they had bad body image satisfaction low self-esteem um, and they were using really extreme dieting and food restriction um, techniques to try and get back to that um, pre-pregnancy weight so what we found in our study was that um, women who ate intuitively who who ate when they were hungry, stopped when they were full and really listened to their body about what they wanted. They had higher levels of body image satisfaction, lower levels of disordered eating. They had higher psychological well-being than those who um, restricted food and dieted. Wow. It's just remarkable that so much of this comes from the media and we just, you know, sometimes overlook just how profound the media and like role models in society can have an impact on the individual. And so um, when it comes to things like disordered eating and obesity, and we see things like in the UK at the moment, we've got our Prime Minister um, wanting to really make a difference with um, the obese population and thinks that Weight Watchers perhaps could be the solution for weight management. 
what are the best kind of solutions when it comes to um, weight management and how can we instill this intuitive eating approach into public health because it seems like it's not you know it's not like a quick fix like a you know course of uh, weight watchers or um, you know what I'm saying kind of those um, strict kind of regime. So how do we instill this, Megan, do you think? So that is a really good question because it, it's a very difficult thing to do to, because when we were growing up, we were, children are in, instinctively intuitive eaters. They eat when they're hungry, they stop when they're full, they eat what foods they want. But as parents, we, we accidentally unprogram our children by saying you must eat everything that's on your plate you can't have dessert until you've finished eating your dinner and we start to learn to overeat and eat in these traditional classic breakfast lunch and dinner time frames and um yeah so some of the best things to do to try and start learning how to intuitive eat is to eat mindfully and I know it sounds pseudoscientific it sounds a little bit airy-fairy but when you sit down at a at a meal and you concentrate on the smell and the taste and the feel of the food that you are eating you are your brain recognizes that you are eating a meal whereas if you get your uber eats sit on the couch um, watching TV or you're on your phone while you're eating dinner and you're distracted, your brain doesn't actually acknowledge that it's eaten that dinner mm. or eaten that meal. It doesn't feel satisfied. So after you go and go and wash the dishes, come back, sit down on the couch, you're like, I really feel like a snack because your body is still and your brain is still looking for the food that it didn't realize it just ate. Mm. So that's one of the biggest things is eating mindfully, stopping, don't be distracted while you eat, try to really appreciate the food that you're eating. Mm -hmm. And Sabrina, do you have anything to comment on this? Um, so yes, uh, in our group therapies for, for depression, we have a part of mindful eating and uh, this is where we do this uh, raisin exercise. So we give them one single raisin to eat and, uh, and uh, say, say to them, just take 10 minutes time and use all your five senses to eat this raisin. So it's, it's really, um, I think, beneficial for the patient also in terms of, of the brain access. Uh, because it relaxes the situation and um, I think uh, creates a better, a better environment to uh, really savor the food. Sure. And I know that you're also trained in complementary therapies such as hypnosis and acupuncture. Do these treatments also help make a more relaxed environment when um, trying to instill this behavioral change? I know there's a thing um, called gut-directed hypnosis. Are you able to elaborate on this? Yeah, uh, of course. Uh, two years ago, I was trained in gut-directed hypnosis. Um, this is a special form of hypnosis. It was originally developed for irritable bowel syndrome in Great Britain. So in your home country, I think uh, the, the creator of it was people were well. And um, most people uh, still think this approach is kind of um, yep, uh, paramedical, or para, it, is, uh, it is not really medicine or esoteric. However, it is really conventional medicine. 
It's in our official German and Austrian treatment guidelines called S3 guidelines for irritable bowel syndrome. And it's only there because it is school medicine and conventional medicine. And, this, and there is enough evidence from interventional studies showing that gut uh, directed hypnosis works really well for the patients, just like acupuncture. Well, hypnosis is influencing uh, the vagal nerve function and therefore having profound anti-inflammatory effects and also uh, effects on the perception of pain. Wow, that sounds very niche and uh, really remarkable. Uh, thank you for sharing. So let's start to wrap up. Uh, I want to hear from both of you on what you feel the future of research surrounding nutritional psychiatry looks like. And we've spoken about some of the barriers that there are um, when doing RCTs in this field. And so I wanted to hear from you if you think there is any way of not having to apply the RCT model to nutrition studies and whether the data can become less limited due to study design. Um, so how do you think, how do you think the future will look? Um, I think, yeah, of course we need more interventional studies with different dietary types. Um, of course the RCT is the gold standard uh, we, we have, but uh, with regard to all the challenges and uh, you cannot blind patients uh, to the diet they eat. So there will always be uh, 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 unknown factors in this multifactorial system. Um, I think it would also be interesting to go uh, in the direction of personalized nutrition in the future mm -hmm. and maybe to even adapt the diet to uh, the genetic profile and the gut microbiome composition of the individual patients because we have seen that the gut microbiome can act as an epigenetic modulator. We published this data last year where we have shown uh, that the gut microbiome composition uh, correlates with, uh, with uh, gene expression of the monoamide oxidase. So I, this is quite impressive uh, for me as a psychiatrist to see that. And I think uh, one of the pathways we should definitely pursue further is that of personalized nutrition. And uh, last but not least, I think we should include studies on the vagal nerve function. We can measure how the vagal nerve works with, uh, for example, heart rate variability measurements. And uh, to my best knowledge, there are no studies yet on nutrition and, uh, and heart rate variability in psychiatric disorders. So this is uh, one of the directions my research group will go in the future. Wow. There's so much to come. And if you both haven't listened to it already, in season one, um, our final episode was with Professor Tim Spector, who, um, as you may know, is a leader in the UK when it comes to gut microbiome research. And he's, re and he's recently started the PREDICT study, which is all about personalised nutrition and looking at our glycemic response to different foods. And um, I think it really is the future, like you say. And so, Megan. Yeah, and I, th I think that, <laughs> sorry, um, I think that the bottom line for nutritional psychiatry is that we need more. We need more randomized control trials. We need more nutritional psychiatry researchers. We need more. And that's it. That's the bottom line. We're mm -hmm. such in our infancy in nutrition and mental health it's only 10 years old really when you look at 
diet and depression. So we just need more. That's mm-hmm. it. I like that a lot. <laughs> nice and simple. We need to get an army, both of you. We need to work on getting an army and cloning both of you. <laughs> and so, um, Sabrina, you've sp- we've spoken about anorexia nervosa. We've spoken about bipolar. We've spoken about depression. So what psychiatric disorders have you seen the most progression with uh, regards to treatment focusing on nutrition? And what do you think is yet to come? on conditions that have hardly uh, been broached when it comes to nutrition interventions? Um, I think I, so far I've seen the most progress in, in my patients with depression. So um, I think there is much room for improvement there in terms of uh, dietary styles. And uh, most of my patients are not even aware of what they eat the whole day. So one, uh, one of the major points here is to create awareness. And this awareness is not only important for the patients, but also for the ones who treat the patients. And so um, it is now aim for the future also to create this awareness in the mental health community and um, yeah, to spread the, the news that we can actually do something with our inner environment and that we can change uh, um, the, the way uh, we think, feel and act through the gut brain axis. And of course, there is uh, more interesting research to come in the future, but even I think before we understand how nutrition works in detail mechanistically, it should not, um, it should not keep us from... Um, from already giving dietary advice to our patients. Absolutely. And so what resources can you both signpost to our listeners on this fascinating era of nutritional psychiatry? I know that my one resource I would definitely say is read Professor Felice Jacker's book, Brain Changer. She's an absolute star. And like you say, Megan, she is a queen. So what other ones? So I would like to say definitely Brain Changer is the best resource to uh, look at because basically Felice Jagger has written this book in a non-scientific manner so it's really relatable to a layperson so if you don't have any training in science or you don't have any training in psychology or nutrition you everyone will understand it and it's it's written in such an easy to read manner and it's everything that's in the research to date is in that book and the best part about her book is that at the back she's got all the references just like a, a peer-reviewed journal paper so if you want to check the um, sources that she's talking about you can always go and look the papers up and I find that I think a lot of non-fiction books should have a reference list like mm, that mm. but yeah it's just really amazing so the book is really an easy read um, I would also say anything by Tim Spector Edward Bulmore's Inflamed Mind, um, Megan Rossi, the, the gut um, brain doctor, um, she, her cookbook is excellent. Dr. Brupi, the Doctor's Kitchen cookbook is excellent. Um, and my favourite book of all time, if you want to know about the Western dietary pattern and what its effects are on health, is Michael Pollan's 2008 book called In Defence of Food. It's an amazing read mm. and i love i love his uh mantra um what's it eat food 
eat no eat not too much, not too much mostly, mostly plants, plants. Yeah. <laughs> that's the one and yeah. sabrina any resources or people to follow on twitter and or research to read um yeah definitely and with regard to the gut brain axis i would recommend uh, the book from professor Bynan and professor Cryan, the psychobiotic revolution um it's really it's, it's an easy read but with lots of very useful information and also they are outlining uh, um, a thing called the psychobiotic diet and um, uh, this is like really interesting not only for gut brain access researchers and another uh, book I always have on my desk is uh, it's, I think it's, it's very popular in America it's from Mikey Greger How Not to Die I love this chapter on how not to die from suicidal depression so uh, there are many very interesting uh, facts and figures in there and uh, like in Felice Jacka's book you'll find all the references from the literature at, uh, at the back so that this is really cool and useful and um, I think in the next months or next weeks there are so many studies uh, to, to come for, um, for manuscripts I, I also love the reviews for example of Bill Firth um, and um, we recently did a, a review on uh, nutritional psychiatry and psychiatric disorders uh, together, to, uh, with, together with my corporation partners from OOM. So um, I think there is uh, there are so many interesting things to come. And if you like, just uh, 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 type in uh, gut microbiome and nutrition, you'll find so many uh, so many new manuscripts um, every day. So it's like a very rapidly changing field and definitely will remain interesting. <laughs> yes, and that's what makes it so exciting. It's unbelievably dynamic. And so I also want to just make mention of the BMJ Prevention uh, Nutrition and Health Journal. Um, we work very closely with the uh, co-director of the paper, Professor uh, Sumantra Ray, and they are bringing out a food and mood special collection at the moment. So to our listeners, keep your eyes peeled on that if you want to read more about the fantastic research in the field of nutritional psychiatry. So finally, to finish off, a question that I ask every guest who comes on this podcast, because I expect them all to be a foodie. And so I'd love to know from both of you, what would be your ideal last supper? So a little bit morbid, but if you had one day left to live and you were to choose your ideal starter, main and dessert. So whoever wants to go first, far away. Yeah, I'll go first. So my... My ideal starter would be something like a tuna ceviche with the tuna just lightly seared by some lime and coconut milk. And then my main would be a wholemeal vegetarian lasagna with, instead of a flour-based roux bechamel, I like to make my bechamel with a pureed cauliflower. <laughs> so I love that. It's really amazing. And then my dessert would be, you can't really beat barbecued stone fruit with like a, a, a nice mascarpone. Yeah, real healthy stuff. Wow, that sounds so tasty. How do you do that dessert? I've really not heard of that. Oh my gosh, it's so easy. You get a barbecue, because we barbecue everything in yeah. Australia. Yeah. It's just what we do. We're always outside and that's how we eat. All, pretty much all of our 
dinners are cooked on a barbecue. So you just get like peaches and nectarines and plums and cut them in half, take the seed out, put them on the barbecue, and that's it. That is so tasty. Wow. <laughs> and then you just whip up some mascarpone with some like cinnamon and nutmeg and ginger stirred through it and then you have that on the side with the stone fruit that is so tasty and (laughs) as it's summer i'll definitely be doing that because we only use our barbecues in the uk for around two months (laughs) (laughs) and sabrina what kind of food are you into oh yeah i think for a starter for my ideal last supper i would have famous lentil and carrot soup from my grandma because this is really the best one and I uh, I don't know how she makes it but it's really the best soup you can get and um, for main I think I would uh, choose a, a, a veggie burrito with lots of guacamole I love that so I'm, I'm into Mexican food because my uh, uh, my husband is uh, yeah, my husband is from Guatemala, so we love all this uh, this food from uh, from South America and Middle America. And uh, for for a dessert, I would choose like very uh, very Austrian famous sacher cake. So this is like a chocolate cake. And um, yeah, I, I think uh, not the healthiest choice, but uh, nevertheless, chocolate has lots of polyphenols. So. <laughs> exactly, and you've only got <laughs> one day left. <laughs> So it does, yeah. You've only got one day left, so it doesn't really matter. But yeah, I was yeah. watching a, I was watching a food show recently with uh, Fred, who's um, this. Uh, he's he's like this very popular presenter in the UK. He's actually French, and he goes to Vienna, and the pastry scene in in Vienna is like nothing I've ever seen before. I have to get myself to Vienna. <laughs> <laughs> so tasty you can visit me at any time <laughs> <laughs> thanks Serena I know I wish I spoke I wish we speak the, the same first language because then I can come and do the medical elective and nutritional psychiatry yeah. but it's a shame I won't understand anything if I were to come yeah. it really is I would have loved to have you here you know I know I know but anyways thank you both so much you're both such inspiring ladies in this fantastic field of nutritional psychiatry and so thank you for sharing a wisdom with our lovely listeners thank you for having me thank you bye wow another wonderful guest stay tuned for new episodes on Nutritank's Nourish Your Mind podcast Nutritank is an award-winning innovative information hub for food nutrition and lifestyle medicine with a current mission to improve nutrition and lifestyle medicine education within medical training nationwide. Nutritank aims to empower healthcare professionals and members of the public to improve their health and well-being through diet and lifestyle modifications. Visit Nutritank.com for our membership packages, follow us on social media and join our community. Bye for now! Please note that this podcast aims to educate and not to replace healthcare professionals' advice So please continue to seek help from your nutritionists, your dietitians and your doctors. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode of part one in our food and mood sequence, be sure to tune in to next week to food and mood part two.